And I'd like to introduce you to one of the warmest, kindest human beings I've had the privilege to know all these years, and he's always been there for me, Don G. Thank you, Milton. For those kind words, you are entitled to two crises, no more. My name is Don, an alcoholic. I understood that the theme of this particular gathering together of lost souls was supposed to be we can or I can't or something like that. And it's truly going to have to be that way because meetings are made up, whether they succeed or fail, more by what the audience brings to it than what the speaker has to say. In fact, what you think of the speaker often tells more about you than it does about the speaker. You know, if you come anticipating another dreary log, that's generally what you're going to hear. And if you expect to laugh a little bit about the things you used to cry about, perhaps to find a little inspiration for a tough day, you'll probably get that too. And I'm surprised that anyone is here, such a select group. If I have been, I've spoken in every slot of, in the conventions, I think, over the, I've been speaking in AA now for the drunk and sober for about 40 years. <laughs> and I don't think I ever had an afternoon slot. Uh, it, it brutal. I don't know, I hope some of you were here for the preceding one. I, I came in in time to catch the Bickersons. Uh, you know, <laughs> It's true, though. The, the, the audience really does make the meetings. You know, I, at one time I thought the speakers were significant, and what I said was of moment. And I, I realize that isn't the case. It's just a matter you're supposed to get up and fill the given period of time, hopefully in such a way that people will come back to see what the hell that was all about at the next meeting. So I, I'm never concerned any longer about that. I wave my arms, open my fly, or whatever is necessary to hold the audience's attention. I used to take even the commentary that people gave me seriously. I, you know, sometimes a person would come up, usually a little lady would rush forward after meeting to touch the hem on my garment uh, and say, that was the most beautiful talk I have ever heard. And I would think, what insight, what grasp of the program in such a short period of time. And she would generally be followed by some young guy who'd say, you flowery mouth, fatuous old fart. I don't see how you can stay sober ten minutes, uh, let alone ten years or more. And I, and I, I, I don't like being called fatuous. That, and I would think the poor fellow, he drank too long. The brain is gone. And now I know that they are both right. I have to get a few things. By the way, I really have enjoyed your town. We weren't uh, too much available here. We tend to get out and look at the areas where we arrive. And this is a gorgeous city. It's a little eerie, not seeing as much graffiti as we're used to. But although I know you're striving to become civilized, I heard you had quite a riot uh, after the hockey games ended, a little looting and burning and 
I know you're trying to be like Los Angeles, but... You know, funny, I was speaking in this little town just outside of Los Angeles right now. Well, the riots were still going on, and it was difficult to give a talk when a major megalopolis is aflame. It's come in and say, I'm sober! <laughs> uh, and yet I realized that they weren't there to hear social commentary or my observations on the wayward way of mankind. And so I just tried to give a straight talk. I, I think about all I said about the riot were that uh, I have two television sets and I don't drink anymore, so I didn't even bother to go out to get anything. I just stayed home. Uh, didn't do any looting. But, but what I tried to get across to them, if I do recall... And by the way, this is going to be a, an oddly winding meeting. I'm trying to do filler till people wander in. Uh, but I think what I tried to point out to them was that in AA, we frequently speak of the non-alcoholic as the normal ones. Or in certain sections of Encino, California, they even refer to them as the normsies, which is a quaintness that will make you vomit up your sleeve if you analyze it. And if by normal, you mean in the statistic majority, it's an apt use of the expression. But if by normal, you mean to suggest that you believe the non-alcoholic world are healthy, happy people who have looked upon the universe, gathered through careful empirical data, a regimen that they now live and have contented lives. If you think that's what the non-alcoholic world is like, you have not been outdoors in a long time. The non-alcoholic world is stark, raven, lunatic, mad. AA is a little series of islands in a sea of utter lunacy. Those people who are looting and burning, they weren't alcoholic. They were normal folks. See, they're the ones we have to look out for. Even when all of us were at the heights of our drinking careers, we didn't menace Western civilization. We're not that well organized. <laughs> you know, it's the non-alcoholics you have to look out for. And they never have to change. <laughs> Who do you think designed the traffic on Lionsgate Bridge? That was a non-alcoholic, I'll tell you. If they had anything like that in Los Angeles, you know, we shoot people on the freeways. <laughs> we kind of hoped it would improve traffic. It hasn't done too much, but by God, there'd be none of that out there, I'll tell you. I regard driving on the freeways as a form of the martial arts. And you couldn't even swing an arm out there. That was the most insane thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Non-alcoholics did that, I'm sure of it. You know, it's hard sometimes to visualize what an alcoholic is, but it's much harder to visualize what a non-alcoholic is. I, I had no idea that there were such people until I came into AA, and then I realized that most of my relatives are non-alcoholics, low-bottom social drinkers. You know, the sort of people, when you go to their house, they would ask you, would you like a drink before dinner? And mean it. They, take, they intended to take one drink and eat right on top of it. You know, trapped me several times. I couldn't believe they were serious. I never wanted a drink before anything. Oh, I mean, someone just, would you like a shot while I'm mixing your drink? Yeah. 
Oh, I don't mean that they never took more. On a truly festive occasion, they might take two, three even. You know, then the lady's eyes would glow warmly, their toes might need a merry tattoo on the carpet, but if you said, would you have another, they'd, oh, no, no, I'm beginning to feel it. (laughs) You know, when you think of the logic and reasoning that underlies such an observation, it's appalling. If if there's any help at all for those people, it does not lie in our organization. Here is something so unpalatable, you can virtually swallow it, and so expensive it'll bankrupt you. And yet when it begins to do that which God and man designed it to do, they quit. <laughs> but I don't mean to make fun of the non-alcoholics. There's probably some here, even in this audience, and you're not at fault. You just seem to have been born that way. <laughs> But the thing about the non-alcoholic world is that they never have to change. They go through their existence clinging to those dubious luxuries, as our book characterizes them, of resentment and self-pity, getting even, paying back. You know, I watch them downtown where I work and knuckles wipe their jaws. No injustice, they want blood. Gonna get that bitch on the stand, make her admit she's an unfit mother right in front of the children. Ah, but they don't have to change. They just live lives of quiet desperation. Nothing significant ever happens to them. No one's ever been arrested for driving while pissed off. You don't get booked for being a common mope, whining and disorderly. We have to change. Terrible as it sounds, we have to do those things which have been recommended with total unanimity by every saint, sage, elder of the village, whoever reflected upon how to live. We have to do it. We're forced to live happy lives. And God knows we don't want to. I mean, we're just like the non-alcoholic. We're not going to give up a lifetime of failure without a struggle. We wouldn't cross the street if we thought it'd make us feel better. I'll stay here and hurt, goddamn, I can take it as long as you can, you all get hurt, I don't know. And we're forced into it. <laughs> I don't know why, my mind keeps flashing back to that walking in. I have never seen a thing like that. Judges don't like to walk between groups of people. Uh, I felt like I was going through a gantlet. The only thing I that made it palatable at all was I realized that only those without sin can throw the first stone. (laughs) Uh, I probably should do one little thing to clear up that too, because Milton asked me to make sure I said something about alcoholism. In fact, he wanted me to tell a particular little ignominious story. Said something about not paying for our hotel if I didn't. But uh, you know, most of the time, I don't talk a great deal about my drinking because, frankly, I'm very bored with it, having been doing it for so long. But also, under the guise of telling what we used to be like, many people get up and give you a drunk along suggesting, or at least implying, 
that the things that happened to them, they did on purpose. You know, that they did, I didn't do things. I thought I did when I got to AA. I used to think I'd done a lot of things. After I'd been sober a while, I began to dawn on me, I didn't do anything. Things just happened to me. You know, I didn't plan it that way. I even hear people say, you know, I can't blame the things I did whilst drinking on the booze. And I always think, oh, you tragic soul, that must be a horror. You know, I can. Almost every miserable, rotten thing that ever happened to me was done but with booze. You, know, you can't very well come into conflict with society without some member of society participating. And booze was always, therefore, involved, though I didn't recognize it because of the other person's involvement. I mean, I, like, if he hadn't have made a left turn, I wouldn't have hit him. Which is true, but if I hadn't been an unguided missile coming down the street, you know, I might have seen he was making a left turn about half a block earlier. But I was able to rationalize my drinking for many years, until this incident that uh, Milton asked me to mention that kind of was a breakthrough for me. See, I used to drink almost exclusively to relax. And on this particular occasion, I've been relaxed almost a week. <laughs> and I awoke out of a fitful slumber in which I had had tormenting dreams, nightmare visions of Dante's Inferno, hints of the perverse. I could smell the brimstone and the heat was intolerable. And I staggered to my feet and sure enough, I was just drenched with perspiration. You know, and I, I thought, well, what's, what's wrong? Even briefly thought perhaps drink might have something to do with it. But then I noticed that it wasn't the case. I realized because I saw I had retired on a couch, apparently, in the front room, my family having gone where they used to go to at night, and I had nodded off, I hadn't passed out, I just nodded off, apparently with a cigarette in either my hand or mouth, because there was a thin spire of smoke emanating from a tiny hole on this couch. And I realized that what had happened, it had fallen down on that covering that goes over the interior of a couch and burn its way through where lacking oxygen enough to take flame the embers had just slowly spread over the course of the night and you know I was grateful to learn there was nothing wrong with my drinking I'd just been barbecued <laughs> so commending myself for my perspicacity I went into the kitchen got a pitcher of water came back and tried to pour it into that tiny little hole rather futilely, merely producing a somewhat spectacular cascade on the carpet. So I knew that more dramatic measures were called for. I returned to the kitchen, got a butcher knife, came back and slashed the couch open from one end to the other, spread it out, and then was able to indeed subdue the embers with a cooling bomb of the water. The only thing was that it produced a burst of acrid black smoke. That's been almost 50 years ago. And yet I can still remember standing there, eyes watering, looking down at that slashed and sodden mass, and knowing almost to a certainty my wife was going to notice it. <laughs> she was a very keen-eyed woman. There was little that passed her ken around that house, I want you to know. 
And though she was a good woman, Al-Anon material, who would never have said anything to hurt her husband, to destroy the masculinity of the head of the household, there were times when moments of stress, when she would actually say things that were uncruel, I mean unkind, even cruel, things that would cause her great remorse later when she remembered and reflected on it. And I wanted to spare her this. I mean, she might say something unkind like, you drunken son of a bitch, you did it again, didn't you? But I couldn't think of anything to do until, except get the couch out of the house. I mean, she might vaguely remember there'd been something on that side of the room, but out of sight, out of mind. The only thing is, it isn't easy to move a bed couch when you should be checking into a sanitarium. But with that Herculean strength that comes only to the panic-stricken and youthful alcoholic, I somehow hefted that monster onto my shoulders and lurched out toward the front door. At that time, we were living on the second floor of an apartment building that had a very tiny porch with columns. I remember I virtually beat myself to death, caroming off the post, trying to make the turn. But I finally did. But when I got down into the patio, I realized that like Bobby Burns' mouse, you have a statue of Bobby Burns I saw over at your park, uh, foresight had not been my long suit. There's virtually no place to conceal a couch in a typical apartment house patio. And so I'm standing there. My legs are trembling now. I should be in a hospital, but I'm moving furniture. And I remember to creek about five miles away. And so I staggered to my car, and I hefted that brute up on top of it, and got in to drive to my selected place of repose. Now, all I have ever truly desired in life is dignity. I have not cavilled at disaster when I was able to face it with dignity. But as I was driving down the street, it was now daylight. There were people on the bus stops with briefcases and lunch pails and things. I don't know how they stay up that late, but you, they rough there. And as I drove down the street, I noticed that all of their heads followed me, eyes wide, jaws agape. I thought, by golly, it doesn't take much to draw a crowd in California. I'll say that. Uh, until I chanced to pass by an auto dealership that had a large window that was dusty and acted like a mirror. And I got a view of what it was they were looking at. Here's a fellow progressing down the street, Natalie attired in a bathrobe. Almost the same sartorial splendor as Kevin. <laughs> uh, I got a, a weak growth of beard, of course. But the primary thing was that on top of my car rested a couch, which previously had lacked sufficient oxygen to take flame, but going down the street, the wind was going through it like a billows. 
and the flames were 30, 40 feet in the air. When I ultimately returned, I found it absolutely impossible to find something upon which to blame this incident. I mean, surely my sleeping wife and children had not deliberately imperiled their lives in such a fashion. And it did indeed then begin to dawn on me that perhaps alcohol was posing something of a problem. Well, that's enough of the drunk log, however. Just suffice it to say that later I was to move beyond social drinking. In fact, I wasn't even getting into any trouble at the end of my drinking. I mean, how much trouble can you get into in a hotel room with a bottle of wine and a copy of Playboy? <laughs> you know, I, uh, the maid doesn't step on you. You're reasonably safe. But uh, So I, I don't really, as I say, it doesn't do much to talk about the things we did while drinking. I never planned even to be an alcoholic. I never walked into some counselor's office and said, I think I'd like to major in vomiting, perhaps a minor in diarrhea. Uh, I never planned an evening the way it went. I never said to myself, what do we do? It's Friday night, I've got a pint in the house, I think I'll kill that, and then I'll go out and total the car. <laughs> I've just canceled the insurance to save money, so that'll be a good start. <laughs> Perhaps on the way to the hospital, the ambulance would tend to roll me, and I'll have no identification, and I can spend 24 hours being humiliated down in general, but I'll get out Sunday, and I can cup another jug on the way home, and I can terrorize the wife and children all day Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Now, I'm sure from the moment I rose, it was obvious I was too dignified or vain and gentle a soul to do things like that, but it happened to me. Uh, as a result, of course, ultimately, I was forced to try the program. And it works, of course. Never seen it to fail. Very few people work it. I mean, 19 out of 20 alcoholics still die drunk. And not because they haven't heard of AA. Everybody's heard of AA. You, know, you can't lie down at high noon up here on Georgia Street for a nap without some cop giving you a list of meetings, police brutality being what it is. You're dying. You're uh, so Everybody's heard of AA, and they come to the meetings and uh, laugh and feel superior to the speakers. But very few of them actually try the program, and those who do stay sober. The program is very simple, you know. Alcoholism, of course, when I first came around, I thought it was a strange, fearsome malady for which science not only had no cure, it didn't even have an adequate definition. Now it seems to me the simplest disorder ever to have afflicted mankind, the most easily recognizable, identifiable, and treatable. You know, the very name, alcoholism, gives you such a marked clue as to what the problem is <laughs> that if you weren't handicapped with a degree in psychology, and someone were to say to you, what do you think causes alcoholism? I'd warrant you come up with the correct response instantly. Alcohol? <laughs> That's right. No alcohol, no alcoholics. With an alcohol, there'd be no way to identify us. We have no different emotional graph than the non-alcoholic. We come under every hue on the emotional spectrum. The total psychotics, our book says. 
we're alcoholic. Why not? Why should they get off any easier than the rest of us? We have a Pacific group down in Los Angeles for them. I, I shouldn't say this. I, I just saw those lights and somehow it reminded me of Clancy. And, uh, that's a paramilitary group that we have down there. We have sociopathic inferiors, the book says. We have neurotics in every hue on the emotional spectrum. And then it says we have people who are normal in every respect except the effect alcoholism. Happy, loving, joyous, carefree, contented people. I've never met any of them. But if you sober up in Los Angeles, you wouldn't be asked to. I assume they either live here or were in Akron when Bill was writing the book. Because... I have never known an alcoholic to suffer from a single emotion that non-alcoholics don't suffer from. The seven deadly sins weren't written about alcoholics, they were written about human beings. The only thing, I guess, the, here recently I've been... Listen, I was watching a television show a while back, I'm always watching these programs, or the scientific programs and things, and. Channel 28, just our PBS station down there, and there was one on the brain about how it functions, the synopses and all of the things about the brain. And they were pointing out that the chemicals, alcohol, or other better living through chemistry that people are into today, it actually doesn't cause you to have pleasure. What it does is kick into action certain of the pleasure centers in your brain. The brain is the greatest chemical set in the world. And they discovered that alcoholics don't produce endorphins like other people. Endorphins are those endogenous morphine that the body pumps into you when you're subject to stress or when something difficult is demanded of you. It's very necessary. In other words, if you, back in the earlier days when we used to run to chase down our game, the body would reward you, make it possible for you to run through pain by producing this morphine in the brain. That's why runner's high is involved. It, uh, if you don't eat for a while, and that used to be a thing that was very frequent, you fast for a while, endogenous morphine is kicked in. You go 40 days and nights without eating, and you'll get on a mountain and discuss things with Satan, too. <laughs> and so it seems like we we have extreme reaction to whatever is going on. Whatever is happening in life is more abrasive to us because we don't have the reaction of this morphine that kicks in under stress. One time many years ago, there was a fellow who used to run an aircraft plant down in the San Fernando Valley, and he talked about how if people were born with a headache, you know, not an intolerable migraine, but a, a dull, chronic, nagging headache, and you were born with it, you wouldn't know you had it. You would assume that this is how everybody felt, and you would feel different and isolated because they all seemed to be able to get along and do things while you suffered with a headache. And then suppose you're about 14 or 15, and you tried aspirin, and it went away. It was gone. You felt healthy and normal and able to participate and do things. What would you do if you were not totally insane? 
you would continue to take aspirin at every possible opportunity because all forms of life try to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. But suppose then after a period of time, the aspirin began to react. You began to do violent and crazy things that you had not planned, spending money, losing jobs, hurting your family. What would you do if you were decent people? And we're decent people. You would quit. But the moment you quit, that comes the headache. I mean, that's, that's the trap we're in. You know, my friend Clancy, I uh, makes boredom only because he's a good friend of mine and I admire him. But he talks about how between drunks, he quotes from the book, how we are nervous, irritable, restless, discontented as an explanation of why we need to look forward to the next drunk. But that doesn't say anything. It just says that is what we're like. But why are we like that? Apparently, it's because of this lack we have. And the other people who come in today, they have their other chemical ways of triggering this off in addition to alcohol. You know, there are no pure alcoholics coming into AA anymore. I can't imagine an alcoholic being pure under age 40. I'm 43. Uh, no, I. Uh, no, but can you imagine? I, I didn't know anything about these things because half of them hadn't been invented when I got here, and that which had wasn't offered in the groups I associated with. Partly, I think, because when I was younger, I was often mistaken for the man, the fuzz. In other words, when I walked into a room where people were giggling, they ate their cigarettes. I, I never knew that. Was. <laughs> it was true, even as an antiquity, oddly enough. I was speaking at a, at a group, group uh, in Oxnard, California one time, got into an area called Colonia, kind of a friendly area, but I'd taken the instructions as to the address from the secretary, so naturally I was lost. And, but it was a friendly little area because there were guys standing on the street corners, a little bit like Franklin Avenue you have over here. Uh, when I would pull up, they would rush up to the car. I, at a little party I gathered going on because they had tiny little balloons and things in their hand, you know. And when I would ask them in my best Castilian where the AA meeting was, well, they'd eat them, you know. Uh, so I don't know anything about these things. And I, I tend to stick to alcohol, but I, I'm just delighted with the fact that the young people come in and they have as much success as the older ones did. Because I'd have taken it if it was offered. I cannot imagine an alcoholic in full flower and flight and someone says, here, toke, snort, hit, pop some of this, you get there. No, thank you, I'm killing myself with this. <laughs> so down in California, at least, the introductions now are taking on a form of redundancy. In the beginning, they have to get up and say, my name is Betty, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. <laughs> You know, that, that's like saying, my name is, is Betty. I live in Vancouver and in Canada. Uh, I mean, if you're an alcoholic, of course you're an addict. And maybe addicts aren't alcoholics, I don't know, but uh, of course you are. I was speaking down in Texas one time, and a guy ahead of me was a chain smoker. And as he butted his third cigarette and lit his fourth, he said, the thing I hate about these new people, I keep talking about addictions. I want you to know I'm no addict. <laughs> Apparently he thought alcohol and nicotine were vitamins or something. But AA works very well when you're ready to take it. There's nothing mysterious about it, as I say. 
sometimes at a beginner's meeting, a shaky hand will go up and say, how do you really stop drinking? <laughs> you know, as if there was some magic to it. As if some evangelist like Oral or his brother Anal was going to say, heal, heal, alcohol, demon rum. And you never wanted to drink again. It's not like that. You know, as if some fairy was going to touch you with a magic wand. Which happened to be in West Hollywood one night. <laughs> uh, I mean, a very pleasant experience, but it didn't help my drinking a damn bit. Uh, all you need to stay sober is the ability to control the movement of your elbow. Nobody's going to put it in your mouth for you. Maybe some newcomers are so far gone that spastic like their arm hurls things toward your face. <laughs> but if you can fend it off, the eternal sobriety is yours. The only thing is you're not going to want to do that unless you do something about changing, which means operating the program. And it's as simple, really it's as simple as the disease. We have a chapter subtly captioned how it works. And there's 12 steps numbered to help the intellectual know the sequence. And they're so simple, you couldn't possibly come con become confused about them unless you went to a step study meeting. Remember, Bill wrote them when he'd only been sober four years or less. Most of us wouldn't pay any attention to what a four-year-old thinks about anything. And they said, these are the steps we took. One hundred people had been sober a year. When did they take them? Assuming they weren't lying to us, maybe there were a lot of mendacity around Akron, but assuming they weren't lying to us, when did they take it? They took them the first year, the only time they had. And the program, if you do it, is remarkably simple. And then good things begin to happen. You know, each of us lives a life that becomes a miracle in its own way. My own story, obviously, is in its own way is perhaps more spectacular in some ways. <laughs> you know, it's an odd thing. I, thinking here, Milton called me oh, I don't know how long, maybe it was uh, 10, 12 years ago now, to say that he and Ruby were going to celebrate their 20th, was it? Their 20th wedding anniversary by going through the ceremonies again. And when that call came, I had been sitting in my office, and the phone had rung, and I picked it up, and it was the governor of our state. And he said, told me that he was going who he was, and that he wanted to appoint me to the appellate bench, highest judicial office in the state there. And naturally, I said, who is this asshole? We are, you are playing some kind of a game out the clubhouse, huh? And he assured me that he was serious, and I thanked him, told him I'd work him into my pitch. Uh, and I hung up the phone in utter disbelief. With my background, such a thing as that was utterly inconceivable. And I sat there absolutely stunned. And the phone rang while my hand was still on it. And it was Milton asking, or telling me, that they were going to renew their vows, and asking, would I be willing to come down and pretend to be a judge? So now I knew how I got the appointment. <laughs> No, it is, it is astonishing, really. 
it's absolutely incredible. There is no possible way you could go from the lockups to the black pits. Forty years ago, our California Supreme Court was meeting to decide whether to disbar me or not. Now I stick with them. Seven of us in our black robes. Six deadly serious, outwardly and inwardly. One looking savage on the outside, but inwardly thinking, Oh, God, if they can see me in the meeting tonight. <laughs> I take my work very seriously and myself very lightly, and it seems to be a good combination. I can throw a wine bottle out my chamber window and get where I sold blood. You can put a show like that on television and laugh you off the air. It's not possible. How do you go from a lockup to pits to doing that? I don't know. You do what's put in front of you, you do the thing, and everything else seems to come to pass. You know, I, and I don't mean to imply that I have changed all that much. I really haven't. I don't drink, of course, which is the greatest change that can come into the life of an alcoholic. I've learned to laugh at myself, which is something that if you do not do it, will cause you to miss the greatest joke in your own generation. <laughs> Relatively speaking, I'm relaxed. That doesn't mean that I have attained tranquility, but I vibrate to a lower chord. Is all. Sometimes downtown, I work in a multi-divisional court and some emergency writ will come in and we have to get something done on it right away and they're rushing around trying to gain some kind of a consensus and, you know, and I'm relatively calm about it and they'll say, Don, how, how come you take this so calmly? We've got to do something here. I say, well, no matter how it comes out, it won't be as bad as the time I was in four-point restraint and vomited straight up. Well, that's, that's probably true, but I don't think I'd have thought of it in those terms. I, <laughs> now, we were over in England a while back studying the English judicial system, and we're out at a, the Crown Court in Snaresbrook, and because I was the highest of the officers, there, I was assigned to a courtroom where a lord was sitting, one of their appellate judges. I don't know, I don't think you folks do that, I wouldn't imagine, but uh, in England, the courts of appeal, the judges are made lords, peers of the realm. I've mentioned that to our governor, but uh, <laughs> so far, nothing. Uh, but he asked us, would you like to take the bench with me this afternoon? And he mentioned the invitation, included my wife, a beautiful young lady who's sitting up front. Uh, she went back to law school and passed the bar on the program, so she's now entitled to criticize my decisions. And he asked, would you like to take the bench? And we said, it would be an honor. And he said, well, you'll excuse me then while I don my raiment. You may find it a trifle ostentatious. And he began to put on his robes. The high court judges there, they don't wear the humble black that we do. They wear scarlet, scarlet robes with ermine around the collar and coming up the cuffs. And they wear the full wig, not the little freshman dinks the barristers wear, with a long, full wig, and they've got sashes and buckles. And... When we walked out on that bench, we looked like a moving Christmas tree. I mean, he was red and white, and I was just green with envy. <laughs> Now, 
that it was a criminal trial, and the defendant who was in the dock about eight feet from where I was seated was being tried for felonious assault. And as I say, this was at least 10 or 12 years ago, but I know that it was 20 or 25 years exactly to the month, maybe not to the day, but to the month, I had been in an American courtroom in handcuffs charged with felonious assault. How do you go from the dock, the sitting on the bench with an English lord, the jurist in their robes and the little freshman dinks? I put it to you, my lord. You know, what, what, how can you do that? I don't. You know, I have no idea how you can go from the dock to the bench, but I know how to go back. All I have to do is take the first train. Back I'll go. Now, I need the program much more now than I needed it then when I first got here. The odd thing is that works its way into our very lives in all capacities. You know, I, I strive... We recognize each other. We have our litanies. You know, you walk into a grocery store and you happen to bump somebody as you're marching up to the clerk. Oh, no, no, go ahead. First things first. No, no, easy does it. Oh, you're in the program. You know, uh, we have our buzzwords. And, and I find they even work their way into my writings and into my court matters. I, we're listening to the argument in a multi-murder case a while back. And one of the consul trying to get us not to look with too great disfavor on his client, merely because his client hadn't been entirely truthful following his arrest. And I leaned forward and said, or at least somebody sitting where I was said, do not worry, Consular, we all understand that murder often leads to lying. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't follow it up by saying, and if he doesn't get honest, he'll start drinking and be in serious trouble. Uh, And even my printed decisions. Now, that's a frightening thing. Back when I was drinking and young and knew everything, nobody cared what I thought about anything. And now when I write a decision, it becomes binding law, and I publish it on 33 million people. It appears in every law library. In the, you have it right down here in your own courtroom. We were down there the other day making a visit, and I see my decisions are in there. Uh, and nobody was reading them. Uh, no, I... <laughs> But I always know that sometimes some A is going to be reading them and say, look at this, you know, because you find yourself speaking with AA terminology. In law, for example, we have archaic forms of speech sometimes. We'll say that a complaint sounds in contract or it sounds in tort or it sounds in equity. That means you're trying to state a cause of action in those particular fields. And I've said about one defendant, his complaint, or one plaintiff, he said, his complaint sounds in resentment and self-pity. The state's no cause of action known to the law. <laughs> I even said the other day, in law as in life, half measures avail us nothing. And my colleagues say, where do you get those phrases? I don't know. They just pop, pop. They, uh... By the way, I don't want to tear the heart totally out of a newcomer's aspirations by implying that all your life in AA is going to be happy. Don't give up hope. You are going to know misery 
pain beyond anything you can presently comprehend. See, the world, it is the old world yet. The universe does not rise up on tippy toes when we stop sucking on a jug. All the things that flesh your air to are going to happen to us. Why shouldn't they? Sixteen, seventeen years ago, my family that I then had and uh, disintegrated, and I found myself batching and taking care of a teenage son. I'd like to tell you that as a result of our beautiful program, I was able to communicate with him one-on-one. But another, any man who says he talks to his pubescent son one-on-one lies about other things, too. Of course you don't talk to an adolescent. Adolescence is a form of insanity. And that's when most of us start drinking, and alcohol is a great preservative. But they're going through the agony of the damned. Youth is such a horrible period. Oh, God, isn't it awful? Think back to what terrible it was. You, when you're young, at least in a male, you've got to, by God, cover the ground you walk on. Stand up for your rights. Protect them. You know, somebody would say to me, I can whip your ass. I'd have to yank off my coat and let them do it. Uh, I mean, it's a horrible period. My boys, they were like Greek Adonises, and they'd get a pimple, and their life was ruined. Oh, my God. And the girls were just as bad, maybe even worse. They would come home sometimes in tears, and I'd say, what's wrong, honey? And I'd say, that boy, what did he do? He looked at me. What do you mean he looked at you? How did he look at you? He looked at me funny. What do you mean he looked at you? How did he look at you? He looked at me funny. What do you mean funny? Funny hostile? Funny lewd? Funny lured? Funny aggressive? What kind of funny? Funny, funny. <laughs> they are dying and they have no command of the English language. There, there is no power of speech. They go into their room where they have primordial grunts. They set the music and they, they play that. No, of course I didn't speak to him. He lived in the front of the house. I lived in the rear. The only time I ever saw him, I used to throw money in the hall and wait. But we survived. He grew up and he went through college and he's about 30 years old. We have six years on the program now. And after a period of our ricocheting around the house like that, along came this beautiful young lady and moved in where angels would have feared to tread. And uh, though she is much younger than me, she seems to like me, and that's very good. She doesn't even object to old age creeping on her at night, and that's better. But when I say unpleasant things happen, not only was that disruption in my life unexpected, about four or five years ago, this young woman, who now has 27 years on the program, I don't monkey with newcomers, uh, she came home one night and a burglar, one day, and a burglar was in the house. And he smashed her in the face, broke all the bones in her face, took two plastic surgeries to put her back together. He wasn't out to get me, as the police first thought. He was just some guy loaded on crack, needed a fix, and he picked our house. 
You know, some people might say, how could that happen? How could this occur to a person who's devoted their lives to trying to help troubled people with alcohol and drug problems? And the answer to it is, why not? Why not? The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Maybe we're even in a better position to understand it. He needs the program. I hope he makes it. He'll have a funny story. You know, our stories, we get up and tell stories that would tear tears from the heart of a stone and everybody laughs. He'll have a great story. Think of it. Yeah, I needed a fix, you know, and I was out in the valley and I just picked out a house of record. My luck caught a judge's house. <laughs> Not only a judge, but an appellate court justice. And his wife came home and pop, I put her in the hospital. <laughs> I don't know if I'll laugh or not, but I'm not going to sponsor him. <laughs> About a year after that, my elderly stepmother, woman in her 80s, burglar came into her house one night and raped her. Grabbed her by the face, followed up the cataract surgery in her eyes. Less than a year after that, she lived in a very quiet little town where... Less than a year after that, my mother, who was in her 80s, lived in an even smaller town in Northern California where people looked out for her, except one person, burglarized her house and murdered her. Now, these things are tragedies. The mere fact you're working the program, the fact that basically your life is good, isn't going to spare you from hardship. In fact, somebody always manages to turn it to where there's even levity in that. One of my women colleagues on the court, when she heard about these series of things that had happened to the women in my life, she came around to tell me, you know, Don, any thought I had of having an affair with you is off. (laughs) Now, life is going to go on. It is going to be incredible. I don't know that there's any way I could ever spare anyone from their suffering that's requisite to make this program. I don't know that I would even want to. But the miracle is going to be there if we stick around for it. I heard a woman speak in a meeting a while back who had come from a family of child abuse and abused her own children. And now as a result of the program, she built a loving relationship with her family. You know, to see the cycle of child abuse broken to my mind is more miraculous, more admirable, more to be aspired to than seeing somebody become a judge. The things we have done, I used to talk about living the abundant life, exuberant life, because that's what I want to do. Moderation is a rumor to us, to me at least, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I think you should get out and do it to the utmost. How do you know I got through the male menopause racing motorcycles with Steve McQueen. Got a bunch of trophies I won after I was 50 years old. I don't mean the flat desert racing. I'm talking about those what they call in girls. They throw you into a creek and send you for 250 miles with hidden checkpoints to see how much pain you can stand while being punctual. Alcoholics are just gifted at that. Uh, Took up flying. Took three hours of training, soloed, rented a plane in Los Angeles, flew to San Francisco that weekend. It didn't have any instruments. I didn't know anything about navigation. I just flew over Highway 101. Ha ha ha! Worked that program. Took my first free fall parachute jump before I, just before I became a grandfather. Took up scuba diving. I know you're supposed to study, you know, put on snorkels and flippers and 
practice in pools or something, but I, I, I'm a couple of bars, I'll pick it up, type you. Besides, when I came around to AA, they said everything the alcoholic needs to know is in the big book. So why in the hell would I study scuba diving? <laughs> put, in all, put on the equipment, leaped in off Catalina Island. It was so beautiful down in Seaweed City, I stayed down and I ran out of air. <laughs> See, because this is the thing. AA is a, is a sense of freedom. We come in and we think, no more joy, no more bright lights on Saturday night. Now just a drudging walk through a dank, dark tunnel. We're struggling up an arid mount carrying our cross of sobriety. And it isn't like that. This is what it is all about. This is where we begin to live. And we can do anything we want as long as we'll do it without chemical courage. And it's very simple because we have the greatest scapegoat known to man. God. I haven't made a mistake in decades. No errors, no deviations from the path of dollar or rectitude, not even the faintest paw-paw have I been guilty of. On the other hand, God has seen fit to do through me some of the dumbest, most petty, egomaniacal, lewd, lurid things you can imagine. But if it gives him pleasure to make me look like a horse's ass, who are you to criticize? Take it up with him. I know other speakers get up here and they say that what they tell you is their own opinion. That's not true with me. I've taken the third step. What I tell you is the word of God. And you better listen up. The only trouble is he keeps changing his message about once a month making me look like another boob for having misconstrued it in my last talk. But no, this is what life is about. It is to get out and live it. I know you young people regard yourself as immortal and, you know, and, and today the meeting seemed to be made up of so much, so many young people. I know that's not true. It isn't that they're any younger. It's just that I'm, I've never been this old before. Uh, but even you young people. You don't have that much time. Fifty years, everybody in this room is going to be dead. I mean, we rise like bubbles in champagne. The wink of a celestial eye and we're gone. You know, and to think of, of losing it in sodden drunkenness or on the nod from some other chemical. Not being aware. See, because the worst thing that can happen to you if you try the program is you'll spend the balance of your life in full possession of your faculties. Now, I know that's a threat. I don't minimize it. You won't be able to be hip and slick and cool. We won't be able to say, hey, what's happening, man? I mean, shit, you'll know. <laughs> uh, who's ever recording this, strike that scatological term. That, uh, I didn't mean to use that. But now is the only time we have. I know young people regard themselves as immortal. When one of my sons was going through the testosterone rush, you know, he said to me, you know, Dad, if I should ever die... I said, what the hell do you mean, if punk? You know, that's not a hypothesis. That's reality. I'm looking at it. Which is true. I've given up the thought of suicide. How much time would I really save if you get right down to it? Maybe it is not that my program is much better. All of those things that I mentioned the doing, even including running marathons after I quit smoking, all of those things produce endorphins. They're risk sports. There's all kinds of ways of getting high and getting exuberant without taking drugs. But whatever you want to do, you've got to do it now. Life is so short. There's tragedies that I talked about here just recently. If you want to do something to improve society, to strike a blow for justice, lighten the loads of your fellow men, you've got to do it now. In the tomb, nobody raises their hand for righteousness' sake or any other sake. If you want to do something that is tender, loving, gentle, lewd or lurid, you got to do that now, too. 
poet said, the grave, it is a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Another poet said, the bird of time has but a little way to flutter, and the bird is on the wing. I'm an age where my bird doesn't have too long a flight left, and I don't want to miss a single beat of those wings, and I just hope some of you will stick around and fly with me. Thank you.